0: So you may have heard the word yeshiva, or the name yeshiva used, or yeshiva, it's also pronounced. Um, So a yeshiva is a place of higher learning, of Torah. Torah study has always been central to the Jewish people from the very, very beginning of Judaism. And when we say Torah, it includes not just the written word of the Torah, but also the oral Torah, which is all the information that was taught to Moses and that was written down in the many thousands or hundreds of thousands of books that we have today, uh, both the law as well as all what we call agada, the non legal parts, the history, the grammar, the ethics, philosophy, character building, all classified as agada. Torah study has always been central to our people. So all Jews study Torah, and all Jews should study Torah, ideally daily, at least once in the morning, once at night. That's the bare minimum, but everyone should regularly be studying Torah in their spare time. I tell my children when they tell me they're bored, I tell them Jews are never bored, because you can always study Torah, right? That's always, we always have, we always study Torah. So we, at every spare moment we have, we study Torah, and that's what Jews have always done throughout our history. So while we all study Torah, and we'll soon talk about the base medrash, For non-full-time students, a yeshiva was usually a center for full-time students who were dedicated to the advancement of the study of Torah. So usually it was an advanced school for advanced studies, full-time scholars that would study full-time. There's not always, but generally, full-time study of Torah. Uh, There is another word for it, yeshiva, which literally in Hebrew means sitting down. From the word lashevet and we don't know why it's called a yeshiva we're not given the reason um, perhaps because they would sit and study um maybe it's a reference to some suggest it's a reference to the central yeshiva when we had a sanhedrin we had a supreme council there was a yeshiva or academy that went alongside the sanhedrin so maybe that is where and the sanhedrin would have to sit when they were in session the supreme council so maybe that's where the name comes from but it's called yeshiva it is also called, there's an Aramaic word for it, masifta, or in um, Sephardic pronunciation, matifta, which is a, uh, just another Aramaic word which also means a place for a sitting, like yeshiva. It's just an Aramaic translation, but masifta has also been a very common term that's used for the same word, for the same concept. So our sages in the Talmud, in the Medrash, say that we had yeshivas even before Judaism began. The first yeshiva mentioned in the Midrash a number of times is Shame, the son of Noah. opened a yeshiva and he taught what would have been a proto-Torah. He didn't have the Torah as we had it. He couldn't have had the stories that didn't yet happen, but he had, apparently, Hashem had taught him many of the laws um, of the Torah and uh, he or, and the values and the philosophy and the teachings, uh, many of these were taught already, including, of course, the early history. And so he would teach in yeshiva. And later, his, he was joined by his great grandson, Aver. Aver is the father of the Ivrim, the Hebrews. Um, in leading this yeshiva according to the mentor she was in jerusalem she was actually the king of it was also also known as maliki tzedek was the king of jerusalem and so they led this yeshiva and according to our sages both abraham later isaac and later jacob all studied in the yeshiva in this school that they had in jerusalem that was led by Shame, and then after Shame's death, his great grandson Aver, They were they were ancestors of Abraham, but they lived a very very long time. Um, so after they after they did the after they built the yeshiva of Shame, uh, uh, sorry Abraham Isaac and Jacob all studied in this yeshiva of Shame and Aver. Uh, later, um, by the time. Jacob already comes back to the land of Israel with his family. He studies as a young man there. Aver has already died. And the yeshiva apparently closed at this point. But apparently Jacob had his own yeshiva. For his children, his grandchildren, where they studied and taught Torah. And before they went down to Egypt, when his son Joseph... Invited the whole family to come to Egypt, and the whole family, Jacob, with his children and his grandchildren, and even great grandchildren, all moved to Egypt. Before he goes, the Torah tells us he sent Yehuda, Judah, was sent ahead of him. Why was Judah sent ahead? So, in order that the Midrash tells us, in order to build a yeshiva, that's why he was sent there. So, they built the yeshiva in Egypt, too. And that's why the Talmud tells us, "May Olam Lo Yeshiva May The yeshiva never stopped from our forefathers, even while they were in Egypt enslaved. The tribe of Levi, we're told, was not enslaved, and they studied Torah. They said and studied Torah. So all the so those who wanted at least from the tribe of Labor were able to sit and study. And there was a yeshiva, they, it was still a proto-Torah, they didn't have the Torah of Moses yet, but they had some early versions of it that they were given, that Hashem had already taught them, and they were studying this Torah in this yeshiva, even in Egypt itself, and presumably Moshe himself, although he grew up in the palace, and Aaron, of course, um, who was a leader until Moshe came back to Egypt, Moshe himself seems to be knowledgeable in Judaism knowledgeable about God when God appears to him and when he comes he presumably also studied he was in contact with his family Um, he, he knew his family well and he also spent some time studying in this yeshiva in Egypt once however they come out of Egypt now everybody is in a yeshiva. This is the biggest yeshiva that we've ever had in our history. Once we stood at Mount Sinai, the Torah is given. Now, mentioned in this week's Parsha, Moshe sits to um, judge the people and to teach the people and he builds this whole hierarchy system and for the next 40 years he's teaching Torah. What are the rest of the Jewish people doing? There's no work. They're in the desert. They don't need any money because they have their breads coming down from heaven. And even the clothing, it says, did not wear out. So they don't need any money. They're not working. They're in the middle of the desert. They studied. They spent 40 years studying. It was one big, the whole camp in the desert was one big yeshiva they were studying. Once they entered the land of Israel, they built yeshivas (laughs) to study Torah. They continued They have yeshivas. They was usually often um, alongside the where the temple was first in Shiloh. There appears to have been a yeshiva. um, At the end of the Shiloh period, we know that Eli led a yeshiva. Later, Shiloh was destroyed. The prophet Samuel led a yeshiva. He lived in Ramah, which is just north of Jerusalem, Um, and then later. Uh, Jerusalem becomes the center and uh, when Jerusalem is the center the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council would have been there, there would have been yeshivas there but not just there, there would have been throughout the land of Israel Um, there would have been centers for study in addition to, we'll talk about it soon there were also places for working people to study Bati Medrash but in addition to the base Medrash places for working people to study there were also always full time yeshivas people can study in fact, we're told that in the days of King Chizkiyahu, one of the later kings of Judea of of, of Israel, and um, and uh, he he's, he expanded the land of Israel, and he in he instituted a uh, required education, and not only did he institute required education and schooling, building yeshivas from Dan to Beer Sheva. Dan was the northern. Most city, Beersheba was the southernmost city. And not only that, he sent around people to go and test the students to make sure that everybody knew what they were studying. Everyone was familiar with their studies, and that every school was up to par. So he built yeshivas all across the land of Israel. With the destruction of the temple, the or even before the destruction of the temple, the Sanhedrin the Supreme Council of Judaism, and all of its leadership, both its political leadership, the wealthy people, as well as its its spiritual leadership, including the members of the Sanhedrin, were all exiled to Babylon some years before the destruction of the temple in an earlier exile. And over there in Babylon, the Sanhedrin set up shop and they built a yeshiva. So by the time the rest of the people came a dozen years later, with the destruction of the temple, they were all exiled from the land of Israel to Babylon. There was already functioning schools and yeshivas and places to study and scholars and rabbis. There was already a community built with anything, with all the spiritual life that a Jewish community can ha- should have. Later, after many years in Babylon, Ezra, who is the leader of the Sanhedrin in his days of the Supreme Council, brings the Supreme Council the Sanhedrin back to the land of Israel Together with it, he brings the yeshiva that was based in Babylon alongside the Sanhedrin to Israel, and again, Israel becomes, and Jerusalem in particular, becomes the center of Jewish study. There are still yeshivas in Babylon. We know that Mordechai had a school in per, in in Persia, in Shushan, in the capital of Persia. There would have been schools in Babylon throughout this time, yeshivas for higher learning. But the primary yeshiva was in um, in Jerusalem. Um, that ran alongside the Sanhedrin. That's where the best of the brightest of the brightest went and the best students went. And uh, we know that even from Babylon, many people um, went came from Babylon to study in the yeshiva in Jerusalem. Uh, perhaps most notable is Hillel. The great sage Hillel um, was from Babylon and he moved to Jerusalem to study in the great yeshiva there. Um and so, uh, uh, and so uh, the first, we don't know much about how these yeshivas function. They don't tell us much about, you know, where the students slept, what they ate, you know, how, what was the order of the day like. We don't know much details. Um, the first yeshiva we know a little bit of detail is the yeshiva of Shemaya and Aftalyot. Shmaya and Aftalyot were the president and vice president of the Sanhedrin um, about little over 100 years before the destruction of the second temple. Hillel, studied in their yeshiva, um, in their academy, when they were leaders of the Sanhedrin. Um, we know the Talmud tells us that the yeshiva of Shmai and Aftalion, um, the way they supported the yeshiva was they charged an entrance fee to get in. It costed a half a coin to get in, in order to get into the yeshiva. Hillel, we're told, was very poor. He didn't have money for that entrance fee. He, was, he worked as a laborer and he would, have, he, would take, he would earn one coin a day, half of which he would use to feed his family. The other half of the entrance fee for the yeshiva. At one time he didn't have money and so he climbed up on the roof to be able to look through the skylight, put his ear to the skylight to be able to hear the class. Uh, so, but, so we know a little bit about that yeshiva. Later, much later, Hillel himself becomes the president of the Sanhedrin and he built his own yeshiva in Jerusalem while his the vice president of the Sanhedrin at the time, his colleague Shammai built another yeshiva in Jerusalem. and these these were both these two yeshivas opened about a hundred years before the destruction of the temple. and uh, with the opening of these yeshivas these These two great yeshivas became the two great academies in Jerusalem and remained the primary academies in Jerusalem all the way through to the destruction of the temple. And most of the sages who lived during this period, and this is the early Mishnaic period, so we know a lot of names and a lot of details of sages from this period, were either from the Hillel Academy or from the Shammai Academy, based Hillel or based Shammai. They studied in one of these two schools. Details of how the school's functions we don't know so much, but we do know there were these two prominent schools, and some who studied in one school, some who studied in um, the other school. After the destruction of the Temple, the, um, the Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zaki, who was the president of the Sanhedrin and the leader, essentially the president of the Supreme Council of Judaism, is essentially the leader of Judaism, the spiritual leader of the Jews. So Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zaki manages to convince the emperor Vespasian to allow the entire Sanhedrin and all the students of their of the academy, with the, the academies with the Sanhedrin, to escape Jerusalem and to go to Yavna, which was a city near Jerusalem that already had a yeshiva And so they all escape and they go to Jerusalem and that becomes the new center. The uh, Sanhedrin is reconvened over there, led by Rabon Kamniel, and there is a great yeshiva there in Yavna. Um, We know some details, various details about the yeshiva in Yavna. We know that they had, there was, not anyone could get in. You needed to be a great scholar. um, And not just a scholar, you needed to be a pious individual. So unless you can... Somehow, we're not sure what kind of evidence you needed to bring. Uh, but unless you could get recommendation that you're both a unique scholar and a very pious individual, you were not able to enter the, um, the base medrash. Uh, there was a story later, the Talmud tells us, that Rabban Gamliel, over an inc- a couple incidents, was removed from his position as the president of the Sanhedrin and leader of the academy. And uh, in his place, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah was appointed and Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah decided to remove any limits on entering the academy. Anyone can join or be wide open. Whoever wants to come study can walk in and hear the leaders of the um, leaders of Israel debating Torah. And uh, they opened it up and they had and it got packed. Everybody came. And they had to keep adding more and more benches for everyone to sit on. It was so full. the um, uh, the uh, in this uh, at, at this time. And at this point, they moved to a, um, to a vineyard because they couldn't even fit in their academy. It's known as Keren Yavna the vineyard in Yavna, that they studied during this period because, uh, they, because there were so many people that wanted to come and study. Anyone could get in to the, you know, imagine you know, Harvard opened its gates. Whoever wants can join, right? wide open, right? Suddenly everybody would be there. So, um, so that's what happened in the yeshiva over there. During this period after the destruction, many of the sages built their own yeshivas around Israel. Um, and uh, the Talmud one place lists many different yeshivas there was even a yeshiva built uh, by Ramasya Ben-Kharish in Rome there was a yeshiva, there was a yeshiva in Netzivim led by Rabbi Yehuda Ben-Besera which it was in, Netzivim was in northern Syria so even outside land of Israel there were many different yeshivas Um, the most prominent of the yeshivas from this period was that of Rabbi Akiva Rabbi Akiva, the great sage of Israel we're told had a yeshiva with 24,000 students very very large school um, by, even by today's standards definitely by those standards then um, this was a, a huge school any questions? do we know where Yavna is today? Still I'm not certain I don't know, I don't think so we have a lot of schools though. there's a lot of schools Yavne. named Yavna, yes So in the early 200s, life got really bad for the Jews of Israel, and many Jews fled Israel to Babylon. There was, and many of the scholars of Israel from the various yeshivas fled to Babylon. There was at this time already a yeshiva in Nahar Da'a. Nahar was the primary central Jewish city in Iraq at the time, in Babylon. It was in a region that was almost entirely Jewish. Nahardah was the seat of the Galuta of the prince of the Jews of Babylon. Essentially, it was their own Jewish fiefdom, or um, that region that was owned and controlled by Jews. All the farmers were Jewish, all the towns and villages were all Jewish. And so um, there was a great yeshiva in Nahardah. And so when the great sage Shmuel fled the land of Israel and came to Nahardah, he was offered to lead the yeshiva in Nahardah. Soon his colleague, known, whose name was actually Abba Arika, but he was known as Rav, the teacher, because he was such a great scholar, um, came to Babylon and he was offered to join his colleague Shmuel in Naharda. And he preferred, he said, he's going to open his own yeshiva. So he went to a different city, Surah, where there was no yeshiva. And over there he opened the yeshiva. And it became so prominent, it became on par with the yeshiva in Naharda. So there were these two great yeshivas in Babylon. Um, In the um, late 200s, in a war, the city of Naharda was destroyed. And as a result of the great academy, the great yeshiva in Narada, the city of Narada was destroyed. So the yeshiva of Narada moved to a nearby town of Pumpedisa. Mm-hmm. So from then on, for the next 800 years, Surah and Pumpedisa were the two great schools, the two great yeshivas of, uh, of Babylon. And these really became the central yeshivas of the Jewish people. Now, there were still yeshivas in the land of Israel. There was a yeshiva in Tiberias at this time. Um, that was the central yeshiva in Israel. There were other yeshivas, but the primary yeshivas, the primary centers for higher learning at this point were in Surah and Pumpadissa. These two centers in, um, in, in Babylon in Iraq. And any now the Jewish community was spread out. Jews lived as far east as Afghanistan and India and as far west as Spain. They were very, very spread out. But Jewish communities, if they had a promising scholar, they would send them to Babylon to study. That's where they went to study. Because that's where the great yeshiva was. And when they wanted to hire a rabbi, they would send to the yeshiva in Babylon. Can you please send us a rabbi? That's where you got a rabbi from. And of course, the funding for... We have a lot of details how these yeshivas functioned. These yeshivas were... Um, these, these yeshivas had... Um, full-time students that studied full-time. Their needs were taken care of. There were also many teachers or advanced scholars that essentially were got stipends from the yeshiva. So these yeshivas are very large, hundreds or even thousands of students. They also had a system called kala, which means gathering, when um, two months a year, the the school will essentially, would essentially open to the public in the month of Adar, and the month of Elul, and the public, many farmers, it was a kind of a downtime for the farmers, and many farmers from the villages would come to Surah and Pumpadisa to study um, it, during the Kala, during this large um, time that anyone could come study, was open to the public. Um, these yeshivas were supported both by the wealthy, successful Babylonian Jewish community, as well as by Jewish communities around the world. They sent Um, They would send fundraisers to go to all the Jewish communities and every Jewish community had a collection and they would send money to these yeshivas. And that said, there was a lot of, they were very expensive to run and uh, Jews from around the world would send them money in order to be able to support them, um, in order to be able to support these great yeshivas. Following the Arab conquest of Iraq, of much of the Middle East, in the, the, that happened in the mid-600s, early 600s. Um, the yeshivas continued to thrive. Um, Jews, um, it's unclear if they were forced to or willingly moved away from the villages and moved to the big cities, primarily Baghdad. Um, eventually, the yeshivas of Surah and Pumpadisa ended up moving themselves to Baghdad, which was n- now a huge metropolitan, um, massive city for the time, over a million people. Um, as many as a half of them may have been Jewish. Um, very, very large city with these two great yeshivas in Baghdad. Um, still kind of the central yeshivas for the whole world. People would come from around the world to study there. The rabbis everywhere had, were graduates. And it was funded by people around the world. Um, at a certain point, the caliphs um, got a little jealous of the huge uh, funds coming into the yeshivas. And they started raiding them and taxing them. And um, they ran into a lot of problems. Um, and at this point the yeshiva started as a result the yeshiva started to struggle because of these political problems with the local caliphs um, the local leader local kings and uh, at the same time the Babylonian community began to dwindle because of persecution and Jews started moving out of Babylon. Babylon. Babylon during this time was the largest by far largest and most prominent Jewish community in the world in the mid 10th century there was an incident that changed the Yeshiva world, really all of Jewish history. There were four leading rabbis that were traveling on a ship in the Mediterranean raising money when they were captured by pirates. And these pirates realized they you kind know, just took it a random ship but they realized the value of their find, of their capture. And so they weren't going to just sell them on the slave market as they would normally sell you know, people they captured. But they took, they realized they had great sages. So they took these sages and they brought each sage to a different Jewish community to sell them for a high price to the local community. So we know of three sages, we don't know who the fourth one was, but Rav Shmaryahu was brought to the communion in Alexandria in Egypt and sold to the communion in Alexandria. Rav Chushiel was brought to the communion in Kirwan which was also a large metropolitan in Tunisia and was sold to the community in Kirwan. And Rav Moshe was brought to the community in Cordoba, Spain. Um, And these were the three largest Jewish communities along the Mediterranean, um, quite far from each other. And he was sold to the community in Cordoba. Each of these rabbis, Felt a debt of gratitude to the communities that had purchased their freedom. And on their community's request, they stayed to be the rabbi of the community. So now suddenly, the three largest communities on the Mediterranean had three of the most prominent Babylonian rabbis. And each of these rabbis opened their own yeshiva. So suddenly there's a big yeshiva in, in Alexandria, in Kirwan, and in Cordoba with a rabbi, a leader, a scholar that is on par with the scholars in Babylon. So you don't have to send your students to Babylon anymore. You could send them to the local schools. And so and and the schools in Babylon and Babylon anyway were struggling. And once these students graduate, you have rabbis, local rabbis, from not too far away that you can hire. And there's no need, of course, to send money to Babylon. You've got to support your local school. And so as a result, that led to really the... Um, collapse of the yeshivas in Babylon, and eventually they were closed down. They then reopened, but they never became—they never came to the same prominence that they were. So by the 11th century, there were yeshivas all across the Middle East and and Europe. Um, Rabbeinu Gershon Maragola lived in Mainz, Germany, where he opened a great yeshiva in Mainz. Um, later, Rashi opens a yeshiva in Troy, in France, uh, and there are now you know, all over Europe, there are yeshivas opening. Um, in France, in Germany, Rashi's grandchildren, um, led Rabbi Otam and uh, later Rabbeinu Yitzchak, um, opened yeshivas in various cities as well, across France and Germany. Um, and there were many yeshivas opened in Spain during this period. And so there were these schools of advanced learning all across, you know, wherever there were Jews. And so students would go study with the local, in the local yeshiva. They were usually supported by their own local community, Um, especially in the larger cities, um, and that's where people study. Starting in the 14th century, Jews moved in very, very large numbers to Eastern Europe, to what was then the Kingdom of Poland. Um, In the 15th century, Rav Yaakov Polak opened the yeshiva in Krakow, which was the first prominent yeshiva in Eastern Europe. Um, It was later led by his student, Rav Moshe Israelis, who was um, known as the Ramah. And so soon, you know, there were communities that were, you know, yeshivas all over Europe. Now, Jews in Eastern Europe, as they spread out across Eastern Europe, Jews in Eastern Europe lived a little different than Jews had lived in most other places for some time. In that, many Jews lived in very small towns, or what we used to call in Yiddish the shtetl. They lived in very small towns, villages, towns. um, You know, maybe a few hundred families. They weren't very large. Um, and there wasn't really a central organization or an ability to create these central, large, structured yeshivas. So what ended up happening in Europe over time was by the 16th, 17th century is every prominent rabbi you know, kind of larger town would essentially have their own yeshiva, their own little school. It wasn't very large, maybe a few dozen students in each. And uh, you would get a letter of recommendation from your local village rabbi or town rabbi. You'd go to this more larger town rabbi, bring the letter of recommendation that you're a a scholar, you have some scholarship, and they would accept you into their school. Um, Now, these schools were funded by the community, but the communities in Eastern Europe were very, very poor. So given they were so poor, they weren't really able to... They paid the rabbi a salary, and it was usually... There wasn't a whole staff for the school. There were a few dozen students older students and they would um, the rabbi would study with them maybe give them a class once or twice a day and they would mostly study on their own just with a little direction from the rabbi Um, and they would they didn't usually have a place they would usually have a room next to the synagogue where they would sleep or sometimes in the synagogue in many places they would sleep um, in the, the. usually women only came to shul on Shabbat so during the week there were only men in shul Usually, there was a, in most towns, there, there was a women's section upstairs of the shul. And so the, the, the yeshiva students would sleep in the women's section, often on benches. They couldn't even afford beds for them. And to eat, they would, they would, call, they would, esteg, it was called, they would eat days. And what they would do is everybody in town would cook for a couple yeshiva students one day a week. And every day they would go to a different family in town and it was kind of organized so that everyone would have to cook once a week for a few students. Uh, they were very poor themselves. You can imagine how much food they even had for the students. And that's how the students lived. It was a very difficult life because they le- lived in these synagogues, often unheated in the winter, uh, sleeping in benches, um, you know, and uh, studying usually in the synagogue or in an attics of the synagogue um and uh, you know eating in different homes around town some may have had more food available some less Um, it was not a very easy way to study but that's how they studied that was the yeshiva at that time and during this period in the 16th 17th 18th centuries there really were no or very few really significant yeshivas that were there were some wealthy people very wealthy jews that would essentially sponsor a yeshiva. That would have maybe a couple dozen students. That they would take care of them, and those students would get, you know, hot meals and um, you know nice beds to sleep on. Um, but those, you know, wealthy people would sponsor. There were a handful of those around Europe, but most students were had a very very difficult. Um, in the early 19th century, Rav Chaim of Vilazin, who was a student of the Rebellio of Vilna, the Vilna Gaon, um, decided to open a new yeshiva that would be its own standalone institution. He opened it in his, his own town, Velozhin, where he was the rabbi. And he bought a building, built a building for it, where they would have their own um, places, place, rooms to study, their own um, you know, dormitory where they could sleep, um, you know, kitchen where they could eat. Um, they didn't have to eat in people's homes, um, a proper yeshiva. And to do that, to fund this, he would have to go around Lithuania um, and fundraise. And, uh, you know, I had send them, you send know, different fundraisers around, people to go from town to town, village, collect a few dollars. Jews were very poor, collect a few dollars here, a few dollars there to build this yeshiva. And this yeshiva became very, very large. Um, it, its height, it had a couple, a couple hundred students um, and so was expensive to run. To manage, um, and it was really the prominent school everyone went to. This yeshiva um, over the nineteenth century, more yeshivas on a similar scale, with their own kind of standalone schools, with full time paid staff, um, not just a rabbi giving a class, um, where they, you know, where they had a place to study, they had a, um, you know, they they had meals taken care for taken care of for them. They had. Um, they had a dormitory, or, or sometimes those apartments uh, or basements you know, they would stay in um, that you know, the school would supply. So more of these were slowly built um, around Eastern Europe, around Europe. Um, also in the um, mid 19th century, or earlier, early 19th century, Rav Moshe Schreiber, the Chsam Sofer, who was the rabbi of Bratislav, then called presburg in Slovakia, which was then part of Hungary, um, was opened the yeshiva in Bratislav. And this became, for Hungarian Jews, it became very also a similar thing where everything was taken care of for them. And they would fundraise and take care of it. And this became the primary yeshiva for Hungarian Jews. Um, and, almost, and it remained so for the next 100 years. And almost all prominent Hungarian rabbis studied in the Preshberg yeshiva, as it was called. Um, so, over time, more and more schools began to open over the 19th century. Um, Mirvi opened in the um, earlier decades of the 19th century, which became a very, very large yeshiva. Um, in the later 19th century, um, a yeshiva opened in Tels, which is also in Lithuania. Um, and the Tels yeshiva was a little unique in that they created a more structured system where there, were, um, there, were, there, were, um, there was the. Um, there were semesters they built. They had um, you know, proper testing, which the yeshivas they had not had for some time. Um, they built also um, different classes. They kind of took you know, first year, second year, third year, kind of as you'd think for an institution of higher learning. Um, in 1896, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, Reb Sholm Rashab, founded the first Chabad yeshiva in the town where he lived, Lubavitch. He called the, the yeshiva Tom Chitmimim. Um, it grew very, very quickly, and it had it built branches all across Eastern Europe very quickly. Um, so by the time, going fast forward, by the time World War One um, came about, uh, started in 1914, there were dozens of yeshivas across Europe, um, with um, thousands, if not tens of thousands, of students. Um, And these were real yeshivas where they they had funding troubles. Each one had to find ways to fund themselves. Um, The students, some paid tuition. The wealthy ones paid tuition and that covered their needs. Um, But most of them did not have money to pay tuition. And so they would fundraise to cover the costs. Um, At the same time in the 19th century, they founded the, the yeshivas in Jerusalem as well. In Israel, there were a number of yeshivas founded in the late 19th century. They opened the first Schools here in the United States. First, um, they opened the day school, um, just kind of lower level schools, high schools. Etz was the first one opened in New York. Then later, they opened a school um, called Yeshivas Yitzchak Elchanam which um, eventually merged with um, Yeshiva University and um, became kind of the Yeshiva side of the university. So it's really it's really two different institutions. There's a university and there's a yeshiva. So the yeshivas, yeshivas Yitzchak Tzohanan, um, and then over time more yeshivas opened in the Americas as well. Um, after World War One, um, the uh, Russia became was taken over by the communists, becoming the Soviet Union. They worked to close down all the yeshivas. Many yeshivas moved underground, and so there were many secret yeshivas. Um, and uh, in diff- various different places they were usually very small because you can't hide too many people in one place um, so maybe a dozen a couple dozen students at the most um, there was one exception in um, Uzbekistan um, for a while they built a big yeshiva with hundreds of students um, when the Uzbek- they were able to it was a little far from the center um, and the communist reach was not that strong over there um, and uh, I think um, some of you may know Rabbi Naftali Sarah's father who um, studied, who grew up in Uzbekistan and studied there in the school um, in an underground school in Uzbekistan in the Soviet Union um, outside of the Soviet Union though in Poland, in Lithuania following World War I um, there was, um, Jews became had, Jews became a lot more successful moved out of the villages, moved to larger cities and uh, there was a gr- huge growth in yeshivas opening all over Poland, Hungary, um, across Eastern Europe, Western Europe, um, the United States. A number of yeshivas were opened then um, and uh, in Israel as well. Um, and uh, that's continued to grow. Unfortunately, all the yeshivas in Eastern Europe were destroyed in the Holocaust. Some managed to escape. Mostly it was individual students that managed to escape. Um, there was in um, interesting, just one interesting tidbit um, regarding the, um, the yeshivas in the Holocaust. Um, right at the very, very beginning of, the, um, of World War II, Poland was split between Nazi-occupied Poland, Western Poland, and Soviet-occupied Eastern Poland. Now, most of the yeshivas were in Eastern Poland for whatever reason. Uh, And they fell under Soviet rule. Now, yeshivas are illegal under Soviet rule. So that was a big problem. So as part of the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop agreement that split Poland and started World War II, um, part of it, in order to allow the um, Baltic states to agree to be swallowed up by the Soviet Union, they gave a little gift to... The uh, Lithuanians, the Vilna, which is today the capital of Lithuania, was after World War I, was considered was part of Poland. and Kovna was the Kalis was the capital of Lithuania. Um, so Vilna was given to Lithuania to, to become part of Lithuania, not yet the Soviet Union. It would only be two years later that it would be a year later it would be incorporated into the Soviet Union. Um, so Hearing that Vilna, which was a large Jewish city um, that already had a number of schools, was part of Lithuania, all the Jews in what was now Soviet Poland, um, all the students fled. The bo- there was no border yet because they had just kind of created this. Were all fled to Vilna, so thousands or tens of thousands of yeshiva students from Poland, from Eastern Poland, fled to Vilna. And so there was suddenly Vilna and Kovno and other towns around Vilna suddenly became a mecca of Jewish students of yeshiva students, and so um, and 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 so there were yeshiva students, um, lots of yeshiva students in Vilna, and then suddenly this opportunity opened. Someone came up with the idea to um, get visas to travel to um, to get visas to travel to um, Japan and the Japanese. Um, the Japanese um, consul in Vilna, happened to have a consul of all places in Vilna, Japan, and uh, whose name was Sugihara, um, started just writing visas to Japan, no questions asked, and uh, he wrote um, thousands upon thousands of visas, tens of thousands of visas, and hired people to write visas, all handwritten um, visas, and just handing it to people, and people were able to cross the Soviet Union, if they could get a train ticket, and go to Japan. And so most of the people that took advantage of these visas were yeshiva students. So it was mostly yeshiva students that ended up going to Japan. They came to Japan, the Japanese didn't know what to do with them. Because there were these thousands of yeshiva students in Japan. And so they shipped them all to Shanghai. um, And uh, they spent most of the war years in, there was a Jewish ghetto in Shanghai. They put them all in a ghetto in Shanghai and uh, that's where they spent the war years. And so I had a, a great uncle who um, was actually in Shanghai during the years, and I actually grew up in a, in Melbourne. There were a number of um, there were a number of Holocaust survivors in Melbourne where I grew up, but many of them were Jews who had spent the war years in Shanghai, and they went from there to Australia. And so many of these were yeshiva students who had fled to Shanghai. Some of my teachers as a child were those people some were people who fled from. Um, from, um, from, through Vilna, through Shanghai, to um, um, to, uh, and, and then ended up making it further. Um, so uh, there were a number of Chabad yeshiva students that, from the Chabad yeshiva in Warsaw that managed to flee to Shanghai. Uh, my, I had an uncle who was, a great uncle who was one of them, um, and uh, almost the whole yeshiva of Mir, which was a very large yeshiva, um, over 500 students managed to come together, um, but there were thousands of yeshiva students in Shanghai studying. And they found buildings where they could sit and study and they built yeshivas funded a lot by, um, by American Jews. And they figured out we were at war for much of this period with Japan. So they figured out a way to wire money illegally through Switzerland and um, to fund because they, you know, they had no means of support. But, um, but, that, 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 but that's how these yeshivas survived. Most of them ended up either coming to the United States or to Israel. So, today there are thousands of these yeshivas for advanced studies. There's also a similar amount of, and with, um, in which there are well of tens of thousands of students, if not well over 100,000 students um, studying. There are also yeshiva katanas, which means lower level yeshivas are usually high schools. So, the yeshiva katana is kind of the high school level. And then um, in Israel, they do three years and then they move on to. A what they call yeshiva gadola, the higher yeshiva. And then um, in, in the United States, it's four years high school, um, vary, some are three still, and uh, then move on to the higher level yeshiva. Yeshivas really vary from community to community, from school to school, the exact style, the exact structure. Some yeshivas, especially the high school ones, yeshiva katanas, many of them offer secular education, general subjects, as well as Torah subjects. Um, many yeshivas offer only exclusively Torah teachings, Torah studies um, for high school and particularly for post high mostly for post high school, um, the advanced study. Uh, many go to many um, people from Jews from diaspora go to Israel to study in yeshiva. There are, of course, many yeshivas here as well. There's um, one advanced yeshiva in uh, Los Angeles uh, on Waring Street right near Melrose, um, Yeshivas Or El-Khanan. It was founded by Rabbi Wasserman, uh, whose father led a big yeshiva in in Lithuania. So, um, and today many cities in the United States have yeshivas, there's of course many, many of them all across the New York tri-state area uh, where most Jews in this country live. And uh, there's all over the world where I grew up in Melbourne, we had a yeshiva for advanced study where I studied. Um, there was, of course, there's many all across Israel as well. What do yeshivas look like today? So, again, they vary, they're different, but generally, yeshiva will be all like the um, traditional yeshiva, all in one. Now, I should point out sometimes elementary schools are also called yeshiva. It wasn't historically like that, but sometimes the elementary schools or even after school or, uh, you know, after school study was also called yeshiva. Generally not. Generally, the yeshiva is either the high school or the school for advanced studies. Um, What does a typical yeshiva day look like? Uh, Well, before I get to that, so yeshiva is usually, usually includes dormitories, the students, if they're from out of town, Um, you know, usually if they're local. Often there won't be a dormitory, but there's usually a dormitory along with a kitchen and dining room where they're able to eat their meals. Um, so everything's taken care of for them. Um, today, many of them will have gyms as well. Some, um, you know, But uh, where all your needs are taken care of. And then the school itself is essentially, um, then the, there's the school itself where everyone studies. Now, a yeshiva would look different from a regular um, you know, university or place of higher learning. Because the, the center of the yeshiva is a base medrash. Base medrash means a house of study. Or a study hall. A study hall is a base medrash. Now, the central room in the yeshiva is the base medrash. It is a large room. Some yeshivas have multiple batei medrash, which is plural, um, room, study halls. But it's a large room where everybody studies. And... Essentially, most study in a yeshiva is done, especially in the yeshiva gedola, in the advanced yeshivas, is done alone. You do it yourself, not in class. It's not like university where it's all going from one class to another. It's mostly done yourself. Supervised and structured, but you do it yourself. Now, and so everyone sits in the base measures to study. Now, you don't do it alone as an individual, but Jewish tradition is that we study with a charusa, a study partner. So you study in pairs, together. So if you walk into... So everyone studies in pairs. It's very hard to study yourself all day. We study in pairs. You have set things that you're supposed to study. So um, you study whatever... and um, whatever we, we always study in pairs. And so if you walk into a base measure, it's a large room. In a large yeshiva, it could be with a thousand students or more. Um, there are smaller ones, 50, 100, or however many are there, all sitting in the base together. You get used to very quickly blocking out all the noise because if you walk into a yeshiva, the din is very, very loud because everyone's talking to each other, the study partners. It's extremely loud. Um, there are varying customs in, uh, or um, cultures um, in the um, Lithuanian-style yeshivas they sit side by side, the partners. Um, in the Hasidic yeshivas, they sit across a table from each other, um, a small table. But we sit and study as partners. And you walk in, you'll see thousands of students or thousands of students all sitting in this massive room, studying with each other and just talking to each other and ignoring all the noise around them. So then in addition to these large study halls where most of the study is done, there's also classrooms and then they have classes. So usually, depending on the yeshiva, there'll be one class a day, maybe two, maybe three classes a day. And the class could go anywhere from half hour, an hour, an hour and a half. But most of your day is spent studying alone. and a little bit you do classes, there are, um, there, there are teachers that teach the classes, but most of it you're studying in this big basement. <coughs> so what does a typical day in yeshivas look like? So most of what yeshiva students study, the primary study of advanced Torah in general, is studying the Gemara or the Talmud. The Talmud is the most central work of of Judaism. Everything in Judaism revolves around the Talmud. And so most Torah study revolves around the Talmud. Most of the day they study Talmud. There's two types of Talmud study that is done. One is called eon, which is in-depth Talmud study. So what, what it would usually involve in a typical day would be you would spend an hour or an hour and a half preparing the Talmud, studying the Talmud itself with its various commentaries, often directed by your teacher, but uh, with your partner, with your chavrusa, with your study partner. Then you would go into class where the teacher would elaborate on it, often interactive with the students who already are familiar with it and have already studied it, uh, uh, often show various insights, explain various things, ask questions, raise issues, um, and then after that you would then go back out back to the base medrash and you would study review the lesson review what you had studied Um, there are also in addition to studying Talmud in depth there's also a an each um, each um, kind of block of time that we study it's called a seder. Seder literally means order, like we have the seder for Passover. Um, so you would have a seder for Ion, for in-depth Talmudic study, and then there would be a, there's usually a seder for what's called bikias or girsa, which is um, quick Talmud study. So in addition to in-depth study, you also want to have a general knowledge of the Talmud. So you would do bikias where you just study, kind of go through it quickly, just to have to retain information, to cover the information. To cover multiple pages um, where you would study a couple pages a week. Right? The in-depth goes much slower. Um, maybe a page a week or every two weeks. The um the bhekyas goes, you know, you study quickly, and so usually every school have an hour, two hours, sometimes more, of bhikyas of studying or girsa studying um quickly. Uh, many schools, so that is the primary thing that. All yeshivas do, that is what most of the day is spent doing. There are also other things um, that we do. Um, we study halacha, Jewish law, a focus on studying kind of the final law. So when you study the Talmud, you just study the development of the law. But then you're not going to get through too many laws. So you could, So we study also the Aruch, the code of Jewish law, kind of just to, read, to read and know, become knowledgeable of the actual laws themselves. Um, There are also, um, in some schools, studies of the Torah or Tanakh, scripture. um, And um, many schools then also have either study of Musar, which is character development, a very important part of Judaism, or in Hasidic schools, and even in non-Hasidic schools, we study Hasidus, which is the teachings of, the mystical teachings of Judaism, also help us develop our character. Um, In Chabad schools, we start our day with studying Hasidus for about an hour and a half. Usually the typical day starts at 7 a.m. or 7.30. And uh, I know it's early to get kids up and out of bed, but that's when we started. Uh, Before breakfast, you start, um, we would study about an hour and a half of in-depth Hasidus. And then we would take a break for morning prayers and breakfast, about a two-hour break. um, And then come back, so about, 7 to 8.30 or so and then at 9 o'clock we would have morning prayers and then 10.30 or 11 you come back for the primary study. You study Eon, um, the in-depth, for about three hours or so um, with the prep, preparation, the class and then reviewing the class. Then in the afternoon you would do the Girsol or Bekias, the quick study for an hour or two. Then a short, maybe hour of Halach of Jewish law. Um, there's a there's a between uh, there's a there's a break for lunch in between. I forgot to mention that. And then there'd be a break for right. So after the eon, after the more three hours in the morning, they would then break for lunch at one, two o'clock, and then um, and then break an hour or so for lunch, and then come back in the afternoon, study the bikias, uh, the kind of uh, where the the other studies studying. Talmudin um, quickly would be studied always with a partner um, and uh, studying alone. Studying Halacha Jewish law would usually be with a partner sometimes there'd be a class um, and then we, and then after that um, you have a break for dinner, about an hour or an hour and a half break for dinner and then at um, 7.30 or 8pm you come back for another hour, hour and a half of studying Hasidus again. So yeshivas vary with their schedules but it's a Long day, usually starting seven a.m. to nine p.m. or seven a.m. to ten p.m. It's a very very long day um, with a couple breaks in between, um, and most of it you're studying alone or with your partner, not in class, and uh, and and so it's it's a very intense day, but uh, that's how right that's how you learn Torah. That's how we um, that, that that's how we develop the learning um, of Torah. Now. There is, so the yeshivas themselves, today most advanced yeshivas are split by age. So you go into kind of, the first year, it would be called, a class is called a shir. Um, the first year, shir, shir aleph, you know, follow the Hebrew alphabet, shir bet. The second class, the third class, fourth class. Um, so it usually goes kind of four grades. Or three or four grades, depending on the school. Um, then once you, and some schools are a little different. Some schools do it by Level, In other words, you advance once you hit a certain level of knowledge, not by years, but you have to actually, um, as you reach a certain expertise, you kind of move up. Uh, But it doesn't go by how many tests you can pass, but rather by, you know, your, your, um, the expertise that you have. Um, Depending on the school, most schools follow age. Um, And then following the um, following three or four years of advanced study, you then move on to what's called um, kibbutz or zal, where you just study without direction. In other words, the older students can continue studying. Sometimes there'll be a class, but they're, less, they're not tested on each and everything they study, or at least not told what they need to study. They could choose what they want to study, and they get a lot more freedom once they're older to continue studying, and continue studying yeshiva for many years. Um, and some do continue um, for those who are um, already um, kind of married and with a family they move on to a different system called kolel um, the difference between yeshiva and kolel is that once you have a family and you're living alone and you know and raising a family you need a stipend to be able to continue studying so the kolel would usually um, means that it would provide a stipend provide you a income to be able to study at least um, for a couple of years until you continue and you find um, you move on to the real world so that is um, so the yeshiva itself just some of the t- titles that we have we mentioned um, the various types of Gemara, Talmud study, eon in depth Bikias, um or girsa the um, quicker study the leader of the yeshiva is called the Rosh yeshiva um, he is the kind of the dean of the yeshiva. There is also the various teachers are called Magid Shir. Shir means a class. Magid Shir means the one who teaches the class. So there are various Magide Shir, people that teach classes in the school. Some schools have multiple Russia yeshiva, multiple deans of the yeshiva. Um, usually the Rosh Yeshiva would be a very prominent scholar um, you know, that adds prestige to the school, um, would be considered the Rosh Yeshiva. Um, there are also, the Yeshiva would also have a Mashkiach. The Mashkiach is somebody who essentially is a supervisor. So because the students are mostly studying alone, somebody has to make sure that the students are moving along in their studies to test them, to follow up with them, make sure they're even you know, coming, they're, you know, they're showing up. That they're, you know, making sure they're studying properly, they're studying the right thing. Um, if there's issues to deal with it, so that's the mashkiach's role. Large yeshivas might have multiple mashkichim, um for different classes to, to care for each class. Um, in chassidic yeshivas, there's also a role of a mashpia. Mashpia is a guide. So um, along with their academic growth, students are also expected to grow spiritually. To develop their relationship with Hashem. So the mashpia usually is the one who teaches the on during the chassidic seder during the uh, the time to touch to study chassidus, and they usually also serve as a guide, reg- re- regularly meeting with each student one on one and kind of guiding their spiritual development. There is also um, what's there is also um, a meshev, or nosein which is a person who. No Nose means someone who to discuss with or makeshift a responder, which is when you are sitting in a big hall with a thousand students, and what happens when you run into trouble? You have a question. So there are, there's the teacher. Usually the teachers are sitting as well there. You could go over with your teacher. But there are also people who their job is simply to answer questions. Their question answers. if students have questions they answer, on, the, on the subject, they answer the questions for them. Then of course the um, schools also have a menahel, a director, somebody who actually manages the day to day, make sure that it has money to run, and make sure that you know someone's paying the bills. Um, So there's also the kind of director that actually runs the yeshiva. Yes. So when you go to yeshiva, do you have to pay? Today, most yeshivas have uh, charge tuition. Yes. Okay. They just about all do. Yes. Yes, they do. Yes. Are they only for males? Yeshivas are for males. Today, they have other schools for, they did not historically have yeshivas for women. Today, they have schools for women. They are called seminaries. I don't know why, where that name came from. In Hebrew, <laughs> seminaria. That's what they call it in Hebrew. And um, uh, they're also called them sometimes midrashot, um, which I guess for the word midrash study. Uh, but they do have schools for women as well. Um, and uh, that's developed. The story of how women's Torah developed is the subject of its own class. We should do that one day. Um, The study of Torah for women. Uh, But yeshivas are generally for men. Yes, Joe? After thousands of years of this structure and the busyness of the studies, how is it that the yeshivas in Jerusalem allow their students to run wild and harass visitors to the Western Wall, why, why are they allowed to get away with that kind of behavior? Shouldn't they be studying? That is a very good question. I don't know. I really don't know what's going on. Um, let's, we could talk a little bit about that after the class. Um, but some yeshivas are better than others. Um, some yeshivas are more structured than others. Um, and uh, I spent some time in Jerusalem so I can tell you a little bit about Jerusalem yeshivas afterwards if you want to hear all that <laughs> okay. yes sir? Uh, two questions did the Rebbe go to a yeshiva? that's an excellent question uh, what's your second question? <laughs> 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 no? okay. uh, did, where did you go? What both great questions um, the Rebbe actually new, surprisingly did not go to a yeshiva which is rare Rebbe, we know a lot about the Rebbe's history. In fact, there's a great book that was written about the Rebbe's early years called "The Early Years," the Rebbe, the Early Years. And um, the Rebbe did not go to yeshiva. He studied at home. He studied alone. He was a loner as a student and as a as a young man. And he he was taught by his father, um, but he studied alone. He did not, although there were yeshivas nearby. Very close to him. He could have easily gone. And, you know, Chabad yeshivas. He grew up in a Chabad family. But he, for whatever reason, he did not go to yeshiva at all. Um, myself, I went to a number of yeshivas. I studied first in Melbourne. There's an advanced yeshiva over there. And then I studied in Israel. And then I was in New York in a yeshiva called Aholi Torah. Um, and then I went back to Israel. And then I was in um, a um, in the central Chabad yeshiva in Crown um, Heights. Yes, Bart? So this uh, new... Um a uh, school that, uh, that you're building with JCC, is that a yeshiva? That's an elementary school. But not it's yeah. not a yeshiva? One day we'll get there. Oh, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a part of your... Yes. yes. My, it's by. interesting you mentioned that my grandfather <laughs> built a school um, when, you know, when they, the previous Rebbe encouraged building day schools all across the United States. He built a day school in Newark, New Jersey. Um, and he was involved in the day school for many years and he lived in Newark. Um, he then became a rabbi of the community It was not directly involved. Somebody else was involved. Um, and then later that school then kind of grew into a high school and eventually they added on a yeshiva. And then later the elementary school closed down, the high school closed down and it became just a yeshiva. That school moved to Morristown, New Jersey. It's still there today. But my grandfather one time commented that the fellow who was running the yeshiva at the time was not happy by, with being a director of an elementary school. He wanted to run an advanced yeshiva. So once he opened the yeshiva, he didn't need the elementary school anymore. Uh, but no, we, we, we're, we're focused right now on the younger groups. have mm-hmm. uh, just one last question about women. <coughs> uh, The studies for women are totally different, they're not, the Torah, they're not? They're definitely the Torah, they definitely study Torah as well. Uh, But are they totally different? Are they done in the same style? Um, Uh, Generally not. Why that is, uh, again, we'll do a class one day on studies for women. I have something to add on that. Okay, I don't know, uh, this is Yeshiva University, Um, about Yeshiva University in um, Manhattan. Well, I don't know what part of New York exactly is near Manhattan. So I went to Yeshiva University, the women's branch, in 1970 I started. My my sisters did that and I was following my parents sent us to Stern College. So that was a combination of a regular college with Jewish studies. Both. You needed both in order to graduate. So in case anybody didn't know, they do. You know, there are know, schools I'm for right women. I in 1970, yes. but my older sister. So I don't know when they started that. And there have been advanced schools for women for quite some time, right. for well, for no, at least hundred years. And one day we'll do a class. One day we'll do a class about that. God willing. Mm-hmm. Robert. It was separate. It wasn't with the, the men. We had our own school and branch and dormitories separately from the men. Did the Jerusalem yeshivas close during the Jordanian period of occupation? Or no, because they were in West Jerusalem. Okay, They were in West Jerusalem. Um, so every yeshiva we mentioned has a base medrash. That's the central room in the yeshiva, is the base medrash. Uh, but in addition to having a base medrash, means a house of study. There's also an Aramaic term in Hebrew, um, in, or in the Sephardic pronunciation, bet medrash, Ashkenazim base medrash. And there's, so the central room in a yeshiva, the center of a yeshiva, is the base medrash, that study hall, the study room. There's also an Aramaic term for it that's often found in the Talmud and Midrashim, base ofana. Base ofana is Aramaic. It means the same thing, house of study. But in addition to the yeshivas themselves, base medrash was also something for that every Jewish community had. In addition to having synagogues, Jews always had synagogues, but we also had a base bate Medrash or places to study. Often the base Medrash and synagogue were side by side. Some communities had one room that served as both a synagogue and a base Medrash where there were then very limited times for prayer. You could only pray certain times. You couldn't, you know, pray any time because when it was, Prayer was prayer. When it was study, it was study. Most had separate buildings or separate rooms, a place to pray and a place to study. Now, usually the place to study also did prayers and would even have an ark with a Torah scroll because they would do prayers at certain times. But it was dedicated to study. Now, Jews throughout history would go to the base medrash and they would study. That's what they would do. They would, whenever they had time, in the morning before they went to work, Many of them were laborers. Before they went to work, they would go to the base medrash They would study. In the evening, they came home from work. They would go to the base medrash They would go to study. There was one um, journalist who went to Warsaw. Describes the Jewish neighborhood of Warsaw in the 1920s. and uh, in, uh, So it was before, earlier, before World War I. And he describes how he came to the... Um, he wanted to get a taxi, a wagon, right? This was when there was horse and buggy. And he came to kind of the marketplace where the wagon drivers congregated to get a wagon. And there were lots of wagons and horses and no people. And he asked them, where do I find the drivers? They showed him, nearby there's a building, and that's the base medram. You go inside over there, all the drivers are sitting and studying while they're waiting for their next ride. And there you go inside, they'll see you standing at the entrance, someone's going to come out and offer you a ride. So um, that's how people would hitch their rides. But it wasn't just wagon drivers, it was everybody. Everybody, whenever they could, would go to the base medrash and study. That's what Jews did. We always say every community had this, had these batei Medrash, or places to study. It involved people studying themselves, people studying with partners, Chavrusas. They would have classes, where they'd be able to study in classes, mostly in the morning before work, in the evening after work, on Shabbat, when they weren't working. They would study in these batei Medrash. And every historically, every community has it. If you go to any larger Jewish community, you'll see, in addition to synagogues, they also have Batei Medrash, um, places just to study, dedicated to study. Often the base Medrash will also serve as a synagogue, in other words, they will have certain prayer times. But outside of those prayer times, it's just for study. It's usually open all the time. Anyone can come in any time of the day and sit. There's plenty of books there and just tables and chairs, and you can sit and study. So we've, that's always been a central part of Judaism. So even those who are not full time students, whether they were once full-time students or never full-time students, you still can study Torah. There was always a center to study Torah, and Torah study was always a central part of the Jewish people. And so